0: This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Since 1985, Ana Montes had been an asset of the Cuban Intelligence Service. In that time, she's risen through the ranks to become one of the Pentagon's most respected voices on Cuban affairs with easy access to classified documents. Peter Lapp reveals Montes' tradecraft and how the FBI found the proverbial needle in a haystack. To learn more about the woman labelled as one of the most damaging spies in US history, listen to episode 277. I'm delighted to welcome Peter Lapp to our Cold War conversation.
1: Growing up down the New Jersey shore in 1987 as a junior in high school, I wanted to be a rock star. You know, hair band music was was uh, proliferating down the boardwalk of Seaside Heights, New Jersey. And, you know, a band, a little band out of uh, Sayerville, New, New Jersey called Bon Jovi was exploding. And I wanted to be <laughs> the next John Bon Jovi. I wanted to be a rock star. Like most, I think a lot of high school kids do, right. They want to be a professional athlete or a rock star. And, uh, sadly I lacked talent, good looks, uh, practice and and patience. And then when I got to college, I, I I was really rudderless. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. And my roommate in college wanted to be a Maryland state trooper. He wanted to be a police officer. And that kind of inspired me to public service. Um, my father lost his job pretty quickly in my freshman year, unfortunately. And I he he told me, he said, you know, you might want to think about the Army and ROTC. And at that time, the Army's uh, marketing was be all you can be. And I think it's gone back to that kind of uh, marketing. you know, be 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 the be the best person you can be and be all that you can be. And then when I knew I wanted to go into law enforcement, I made an early decision that I wanted to go to the best in the world. And I thought then, and I still think now, that the FBI is the is the best law enforcement agency in the world, so that's what kind of got me on my journey, my ten year journey to get into the FBI.
0: How did you find the training for the FBI? Is it is it quite academic?
1: I enlisted in the Army National Guard, and because of that, I went to the infantry basic training, um, the Army basic training, and then the the infantry basic training, and I I was you know training alongside with. Folks that would go on to active duty in the army, that was hard. Um, you know, you were not treated very well. You were yelled at. It's the whole, the whole. You know, what you would, can expect army basic training to be like. That is not the FBI academy. Thankfully, you know, we it's referred to as as kind of a gentleman's course, which maybe we should, you know, be a little more general in that. It's it's an academic focused. Uh, uh academy. You, you have to learn how to shoot obviously. you learn defensive tactics and physical training, but you're treated like generally speaking professionals. So I didn't find it rigorous um, but it was definitely mentally um, uh, you know academically challenging and and everyone was just striving to get through it so that we could get out. And get to our assignments and start, you know, putting bad guys in jail, which is the goal of, of, of generally any FBI agent to put bad people in jail.
0: And when you get your assignment, you're a little bit disappointed as to where you're assigned to, aren't you, initially?
1: It's a very kind way of putting it. Disappointed, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, disgruntled. Um, moody. Yeah, I... I um, I thought the FBI and its infinite wisdom, and I use that, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, would put me to work doing the cool stuff, you know, working gangs and drugs and homicide and and organized crime, you know, kicking indoors and and arresting people. And I got I got assigned to work counterintelligence. And I, you know, pre 9-11, the FBI um, didn't do a great job candidly of of focusing and training on national security uh, training at the academy we probably got a day maybe a day and a half to talk about counterintelligence and counterterrorism and FISA and all these things and aspects of national security that umbrella of national security that we were going to work so we didn't get a lot of background in it in the in the academy pre-911. And therefore I, I really didn't understand what counterintelligence was and I wasn't very inspired and excited to go work the Cubans. But that that would that would not last, you know, very long. I got to do some pretty cool stuff early on that was uh, you know, one of which I wrote about in the book that has is not about Ana Montes, but you know, we started doing some really cool things and it I recognized very quickly that we were things we were doing. We're potentially um, not that this is like, you know, a celebrity kind of thing, but we were, we, we were potentially on the, in the news. You know, we were, it, it was a part of international diplomacy and policy and, and had impl- international implications maybe is the best way of saying it. So that was pretty interesting. And, and with Cuba being such an interesting target and topic um, that, that really started to fascinate me pretty quickly.
0: How were you introduced to the Ana Montes case?
1: My partner, squad mate Steve McCoy, who was a senior agent, we had a number of what we call unsub cases, unknown subject cases. We knew, as I write in the book, we had a lot. And I emphasize this by italicizing, you know, how I can't say the exact numbers, but the FBI had a lot of unsub cases. These were the combination of uh, Cuban intelligence officers that were here illegally as illegal officers. They were uh, agents like Ana Montes was, um, like it appears that probably Ambassador Roca was.
0: Victor Manuel Roca is a former US diplomat who served as ambassador to Bolivia and was charged in December 2023 with working as an agent of the Cuban government for more
1: than 40 years. We had a lot of cases. So Steve had um, a legacy unsub case where we knew someone had penetrated the US intelligence community. They referred to that person as Sergio or Agent S. We knew all these different tidbits, but we didn't know a name. And frankly, we couldn't even narrow down a particular agency of the U.S. intelligence community, the best we knew was that it was either at the CIA or the FBI or at the Department of Defense, you know, suspect pool, um, about two and a half million people.
0: So how do you go about finding that needle in a two million people haystack? How, How do you start to narrow that down?
1: Great, great, great question, and great way of, of contextualizing that we had a lot of haystacks and, and and looking for a needle. We had this concept in counterintelligence of the need to know, and and it's a it's a very important um, concept, if you will. You you've seen a lot of recent cases where, you know, do these individuals have a need to know, and and there's art you know an argument to be made that. You've got to protect classified information internally within your own people that you've cleared. Because amongst us, we know that foreign intelligence services have have penetrated you, the, the DIA, the FBI, the NSA, all these different agencies. And therefore, in in our story, we had a, the tidbits. We had a matrix, if you will. We didn't call it a profile because that has a, a certain connotation to it. With a matrix, the right person at DIA heard what we were looking for because they, they had been reached out to by an analyst at the National Security Agency, a woman who we've given a pseudonym of Elena to. And Elena is a tenacious, hard driving, intelligent Cuban American NSA analyst who Thought maybe outside the box and thought about bringing in folks from other folks from the Department of Defense and and did so without the FBI's knowledge or concurrence, frankly, Um, but but brought in folks from DIA and that right person heard the tidbits and said, uh, this sounds like onamantas and then verified. Um, one of those tidbits in the database of travel records within the DIA. And lo and behold, Ana B. Montez's name popped up as matching um, one of those tidbits pretty strongly. So this was going on outside the FBI's purview, to be honest with you. Um, Atlanta was part of the need to know team. But unbeknownst to us, we didn't know that DIA had a need to know and thus had not yet reached out to them to start talking about this very close held, compartmented, unsub case that we were trying to identify. And there's good reason for that. Elena, I wrote in my book, um, Elena got a name of someone to talk to at DOD from one of her colleagues um, to try and, and trace down one of these tidbits and the name she got to call. Was actually Ana Montes. Uh, that was the reputation that Anna had. And this guy said, "You should talk to Ana Montes. She knows everything about Cuba." And Elena picked up the phone and called Ana Montes. Completely cold called her. Had never heard her name. Never met her in a meeting. And and thankfully she got her voicemail because you know even as cryptic as she was planning on being with Anna, the tidbit that she was kind of reading her in on. <laughs> It came from Montes. let's be honest. I mean it was like, you know, the the oh 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 crap moment was 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 going to happen if they had connected. So thank goodness they, they didn't. Um because and that's that's a part of why we have this this need to know principle.
0: That piece in there was was a incredible, real close run thing there. And I think w- one of the things that I really enjoyed About the book is the detail you've got around how you're piecing together these little pieces of information because you, you know, you're originally you, and this is probably a statement of that time is you're assuming it's a male, not female, and then you, this breakthrough from this Cuban defector who who mentions that there's two female spies um, working somewhere in in the u.s and also there was the breakthrough with the breakup of the red wasp network as well in terms of being able to decrypt some of the messages that they were sending which was giving you further clues
1: yeah and sequentially the two women comes first Uh, but but that was such a vague tidbit i mean you know honestly by that point in time anna and marta Had uh, orchestrated a breakup of their friendship because they both went on this path of committing espionage.
0: Marta Velasquez recruited Ana to Cuban intelligence. She fled to Sweden, who has no extradition treaty with the US, so she remains there to this day.
1: So that tidbit was so, so broad and so general that it, it, you know, after the fact, it's like, oh, well, of course. You know, it's Marta and Ana. But beforehand, it really wasn't what we call actionable intelligence. But you're right. these The defectors that come out, these intelligence sparks that we get, they start building on the success. Each success builds on more success. The defectors help us get onto Loretta Vispa. We get into the homes of the Cuban illegal officers. We get key. So we're able to image... Uh, computer floppy disks that have decryption key that the Cubans have written and given to these illegal officers. And then that opens up the door to reading, you know, previously encrypted messages in Ana's case to her illegal officer, who was a guy that she knew as Ernesto. And and those tidbits kind of round out the the matrix, if you will, but still, you know, we probably knew that information from 1997 on maybe as early as early 1998 but it still took another good two to three years to come match that with a with a name on a mantas you know and that's that's the unfortunately the unfortunate part of it it still took a lot a long time to then come up with a name but we're we're challenged by going through methodically the U S government and try to identify suspects and reading in the right people. And, you know, we don't want to, you know, you think back to James Angleton and how he painted this broad stroke and really paralyzed the CIA for decades. We don't want to do that. We don't want to go after the wrong person. We don't want to accuse people that aren't who we're looking for. So we've got to be incredibly cautious, deliberate, Respectful of their privacy, their reputation, making sure that we're going after the right people. I mean, that's that's the job of the FBI, and you know we know that the criticism when things go wrong, the FBI is going to be very easy to criticize. And I think that was probably very much in my mind is trying not to make the FBI, um, make, trying not to make a mistake and go after the wrong person. Because
0: you had the Kelly case, didn't you, with Hansen? Yeah. Where- Somebody appeared to fit the Matrix, um, yep. but it was the, it was the wrong guy, and he really, really suffered.
1: Yep. yep. It eventually killed him, I think. I mean, he had a heart attack, and I, I, you can argue that it eventually killed him. And then uh, Richard Jewell, who was the person of interest in the, uh, the bombing at the Olympics in Atlanta, they made i think a a movie was made made about the guy and, and he was he was identified by the fbi as a person of interest and it turned out that he was not it was eric rudolph and and those two cases were definitely in my mind in terms of let's make sure we have the right person first let's let's put the horse first and then the cart and not vice versa and try to prove espionage before we've actually solidified that we had the right person and DIA, to their credit, Scott Carmichael in particular, who, who remains a good, uh, uh, you know, someone I, I think highly of, they were convinced when they gave us the name that she was committing espionage and they were 110% correct. We had to prove that. And that's, that's where the two different agencies had kind of different missions, if you will, or different perspectives that had to, you know, be kind of married up as the investigation progressed
0: yeah cuz carmichael had questioned her a number of years before yeah um, as a potential cuban agent and um, didn't appear to find you know it enough enough there although the the way the interview went was a little bit strange in so much that she never actually denied at, at that interview you know she sort of steered the conversation away away from that i think from what i remember anyway
1: yeah malcolm gladwell wrote about that interaction in his book talking to strangers um ironically his chapter is called the queen of cuba and no i didn't steal the name of my book from from malcolm but they really focus in on that interaction and how it was misread and and do we default to a position of trust we want to trust you know our co-workers and um but if, after the fact after Anna is arrested. Scott certainly reflected back on that interview from four years earlier and um, definitely had, there were some indications that she, you know, demeanor and what she was saying and how she controlled the room that, you know, after the fact, he definitely had an, he finally had his aha moment. And I mean, in Scott's defense, he didn't know all the little tidbits that we knew. And therefore, you know, he gets an allegation, someone saw something, saw her behaving oddly, on as an odd person, um, to this day, and and you know, was armed going into that interview with a very limited amount of information. And and you know, I think he did the best he could given what information he had. Of course, you know, 2020 vision is is perfect, it's clear. It's not not basic perfect, it's clear. <laughs>
0: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I was I was interested to uh, read you mentioned Svetlana Tumanova um, in in the book because I did interview her in uh, episode two eight eight and two eight nine, which was a really fascinating insight. But I think you mention her in in terms of the fact that you know something like ninety three percent of U.S. Um, enemy spies since the 1950s have been men rather than women, which sort of threw you off the scent to some degree.
1: So at the FBI's Washington field office where I worked, that that office, because of all the the US government agencies that are uh, within the DC area, has probably arrested the vast majority of spies. Um, And there are, I call it the wall of spies. There are mugshots uh, that adorn the fifth floor of the Washington field office where the counterintelligence uh, division is. And the vast majority of those folks are number one, baby boomers uh, number two white and number three um, men. And yeah, the majority of, of folks that have been arrested by the FBI over the years have, have been men. And, and there's a, that's maybe a whole nother podcast. Like why, why is that? You know, yeah. we've, 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 we i've talked about that i thought that about that at georgetown at a class and, and we started really going down that rabbit hole and i was like wow this is really i've never thought of it this way like why is it because women are in my opinion smarter than men they're smarter to not spy or if they do spy they're smarter at getting away with it you know is it is it traditionally you know women have more of a um you know the homemaker role in addition to working where they're picking up kids from daycare or getting them off the bus. And you know, you, it's hard to do dead drops when you've got to get your kid off the I don't know. I mean it's there's a whole lot of very interesting whys to that. But you know, we also have to look at the fact that the ratio of men versus women in the intelligence community is still, you know, pretty heavy skewed towards men. And and it's working in the intelligence community, whether you're at the FBI or the CIA or NSA, wherever it's a it's a really demanding career and and you know, even the women who do work for the bureau, for example, they 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 tend to be single because they're married kind of married to their job because the job is so demanding and very difficult to have a personal life outside of it, which is which is kind of a, a shame to be honest with you. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War, uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week.
0: To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to com slash donate to find out more. I mean, I think the the other aspects of the book, which is which i enjoyed is is you sort of do share what your personal pressures are and what's going on in your personal life as well and what you're having having to deal deal with there um and that that sort of brings to to life what really what what you've just said there about the pressures of of working in the intelligence world
1: and i did that because this was not like a memoir. I didn't want to, you know, I don't think my life is, is worth mem- memoir worthy. I, I wanted to write a dual narrative. Um, what I hoped was, I, you know, a lot of the F- the FBI has been criticized pretty heavily since 2016. Um, you know, agents have been uh, doxed and named when they're just doing their jobs. And I wanted to, to the degree that I could humanize, what does a typical FBI employee you know, do, say, live, like, look like all that kind of stuff. And I, and what are the challenges that they have? And it's, it, it's obvious, but I, for whatever reason, a lot of folks out there just want to like, you know, beat the heck out of the Bureau. And I wanted to try and humanize what your typical FBI employee is and does. And hopefully that, that came across in, in, in how I wrote Queen of Cuba.
0: It did. It 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 definitely did. Um, are there any particular challenges about navigating internally if a potential spy is a superior or in a high-ranking position? Yeah,
1: look at, look at Charlie McGonagall.
0: McGonagall was the head of the FBI's New York field office's counterintelligence department. He was arrested in January 2023.
1: I actually worked for him. Um, for a period of time he's going to be sentenced this week not to espionage, but to being you know on these IEPA type charges, having gone into business with uh, Derespaka you know a, 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 a oligarch of the Russian Russian Federation. you know his, his level, certainly senior level certainly probably insulated him from any scrutiny. Anna's Anna wasn't at a senior level per se. But her reputation, that, you know, and I'll put air quotes around Queen of Cuba reputation as an analyst and an expert and a go to person, I think really did insulate her from scrutiny, security type scrutiny. I mean, the day of her arrest, her boss said she was my best analyst. So whether, you know, she was the number two person at DIA or in the senior executive staff or just the best analyst in this group. I think her reputation really did provide a blanket around scrutiny. And Scott, you know, Scott, even, you know, kind of going back to that interaction that he had with her when he got the name on a and he got the tip and the odd behavior, he pulled her security file and personnel file. And he's like, this is this woman's going to be the next director of the DIA. And that's probably, you know, hyperbole to a degree but she had that kind of reputation and therefore you know when we do investigate people we want to do this um in a in we want to anonymize them to the degree possible to take away bias but at a certain point in time you're going to have to drill into their personnel file and their security file and then you have to look at that person objectively and not be skewed by the fact that they're the senior executive of x or you know, the senior analyst on why and try to analyze the behavior objectively without letting their level or reputation come into play. Um, and that's, that's often hard, but we have bias in, 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 in anything we do, especially in insider threat, in my opinion.
0: You, you were saying a while back, and we, we have sort of digressed a bit there, but you need to make sure it's honor. How yeah. do you do that? How, how do you make sure you've got the right
1: person? So in all the tidbits that we had, the Toshiba computer purchase from October of 1996, we knew the Cubans had tasked Sergio, or Agent S, to buy a specific brand-making model, time frame, dollar amount from an unidentified store in a town called Alexandria, in a state unknown, but, but we presumed it was not Alexandria, Iowa. So this to me, and this is where, you know, my kind of mindset came in as a street cop, trying to just do the basic, basic investigation. How do we prove that she purchased that computer? Because if she, if we could prove that she did, then to me, she was Sergio. She was agent S there's no question. So, November we started an investigation, October started an investigation, November, February we get the FISA.
0: The FISA is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act and it's an authorization for electronic surveillance or a search warrant. It needs to be approved by a judge who looks to see if there's just cause for
1: the surveillance. It's it's April that we finally got to her credit records and went to a a CompUSA in a town called Alexandria, Virginia, just outside of of D.C., obviously. And and we found the sales slip for the Toshiba 405 CS. That is uh, our eureka moment. So Steve and I went down to that CompUSA and within 20 minutes with the manager found the sales slip. Wow. And it was, it was kind of the OJ Simpson glove. Like, you know, if the glove fits, <laughs> you, you can't acquit, you know, and this, this glove fit perfectly. Uh, there was no way that anyone else could be agent S or Sergio. We we knew in that moment, we had had a healthy degree of skepticism because I think that's what FBI agents should have. But we knew in that moment that she was Sergio and then from april until her arrest 10 days after 9 11. the goal was to to catch her in the act of committing espionage the proving that she had committed espionage but at that by in april we knew we had the right person um you know scott we called scott all happy and proud and he said yeah congratulations you're where i've been for the past six months <laughs> um and it was kind of a funny moment but we had to have this healthy degree of skepticism and That's the moment. That's our eureka moment is finding that sales slip. It's a it's a moment that I'll remember forever because it was like proof we had the right person.
0: Were you worried at any point there was going to be wider involvement from her family? Because she had family members who were in the FBI. And, you know, potentially you must have been worried that this was going to be another John Walker case.
1: We weren't, frankly. And and I say this I say this um, candidly. I've become uh, pretty close with honest family and hold them in high respect. Um, in that point in my career, my handcuffs were very fresh and I would have had no, and Steve, Steve is in the same boat, even though he was a lot more, uh, more senior at the FBI in terms of years in, we would have had no problem arresting fellow FBI employees if they were involved.
0: Anna Montez's brother and sister, Tito and Lucy, were FBI employees. Tito was a FBI special agent, and Lucy was a longtime FBI language analyst and translator who'd actually been working on Cuban counterintelligence.
1: So I, I put that caveat out there by saying, you know, we didn't turn a blind eye just because Tito and Lucy were, were you know, in the air quote family. Um, the intelligence that we had originally showed that this was a solo person and we had intelligence you know the kendall myers case um, that was that you know kendall and, and his wife gwendolyn were arrested in 2009.
0: kendall myers is a former u.s state department employee who with his wife gwendolyn was arrested and indicted on june the 4th 2009 on charges of spying for cuba for nearly 30 years he was convicted of espionage and sentenced to life imprisonment in July 2010.
1: That intelligence comes from the same place that the Montez intelligence comes from. And, and that showed that there were two people working together um, that were committing espionage. We didn't know how, quite frankly, until, until you know much later. But the original intelligence showed us that Anna was a lone wolf. And then everything we heard, listened to, read... Um, All the things that we did during the course of of the investigation showed that she was uh, operating in and of herself. And then, you know, it's uh, when we talked to her, we actually were were planning on using the family as kind of the hook. I was at least in in the confession. And and when we were going to drop that, never got to that point because she lawyered up. But she said to us, look, I know my family. And I know they would never do this or stand for this. So, you know, it, it was that last piece of validation that Lucy Tito and Joni um, Tito's ex ex wife um, were not involved in this. And they're they're good people. Um, you know, the sad part is the unrepentant damage that Anna has done to her family, and and she's never really apologized to them for. The hurt she caused them personally, not professionally. Their careers never suffered as a result of this, thankfully. But personally, their integrity, their values, how they were raised by the same parents—that's um, been—that's been harmed pretty significantly.
0: I mean, she's she's quite unusual in so much that she's she's an ideological spy rather than for financial gain, which uh, many sort of other other cases are i mean she was only paid in expenses so right. she expensed i think the laptop but you know th- this wasn't for financial gain this was for well in her view she was defending cuba against uh u.s aggression
1: yeah and i've described it as being more anti-american than pro-cuban um she's disgruntled at our country and what we've done over the years intervening In her mind in places that we should not have i think she's i don't she doesn't see herself as an american and i think she actually is a woman without a country in in a large way she's told us um when we did when we talked to her back in 2002 that she sees herself as a citizen of the world uh, whatever that means i mean i don't i don't know i'd like to see that passport um but, but you know it's this it's this you know i'm really attached to no one and i'm a i'm a um, a free agent almost if you will and it's an it's a really an anti-american kind of rationale i mean i know it fits in best when you look at all the different reasons people can commit espionage it fits best into the ideological compartment but you know to me uh, she's an anti-american um and why she did what she did but that's my opinion. Others, others may disagree, frankly.
0: So you you get a uh, warrant so that you can search her flat without her knowing. But the first time this is done, there's a bit of a screw up.
1: Yep. Yep. You know, one of the reasons. Uh, and I appreciate you bringing that up, because, in fact, any interview I've done, that's not come up. And I wanted to again, humanize, uh, the FBI, um, mistakes are made. I feel like, you know, some of the people that have, uh, talked about this case, um, outside of government have, have really kind of, um, you know, from the peanut gallery, like to throw stones. And, and I wanted to say, you know, Mistakes happen in the real world. You know, we're not here writing a John Le Carre novel or in Hollywood, you know, where there's a magic ending. In the real world, shit happens. And, and, and you know, people make mistakes and it's how you adjust to those things. And in that moment, yeah, there was a mistake made. And Anna, Anna found out that, well, she she came home to find one of her locks unlocked and the other lock broke. Um, it's it's it. It happened. It was a mistake. It wasn't intentional. But the guys that did that, you know, they they had done hundreds of these types of things. And I think it accents not just the humanizing of 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 these things in the real world. What what when you're in the arena doing the job, how difficult it is. Uh, but at the same time, it also shows that we had the most fulsome surveillance of a person that you can have that existed in 2001 the thing we could not do was read her mind thank god i don't want i don't want that mind detection software i don't i don't want a vendor to create that because i don't want people reading my mind um but we as much surveillance as we had against her or around her there were still so many things that we didn't know and how was she thinking about the key how was she what was going on in her mind and and that was a big mystery that we didn't know until we sat down in a room with her and started talking to her post her plea agreement and um there's another mistake that i highlight you know towards the end of you know a couple days before her arrest uh not the preemptive question you may you may be intending to answer but um i wanted to i wanted to show the warts because i wanted I i hope that people would take away my messages that that i'm trying to convey if if i showed the mistakes that were made um and the truthfulness behind that
0: yeah it 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 does show the the human side and that you know things do get screwed up it's, it's 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 not all hollywood um one of the one of the things that i well there's so many bits that i really enjoyed about this book was your your flaps and seals team yep that you that you bring in when you're having to go through a uh, premises without letting the owner of that premises know that you've actually been in there. Can you just describe a little bit as to what they do?
1: The dust bunnies. <laughs> these guys are these guys are so and and I'm sure you know gals as well. They're so good. It's funny because I was as the co case agent. But as the lead agent on those entries, the black bag jobs, technically I was in charge. The reality was <laughs> the experienced flaps and seal agent who was there, he or she, and I, I mean it's it's a he. He was definitely in charge um, of of keeping me from getting caught and keeping us from getting caught. And they're magicians; they're very good at what they do. You know, I I was surprised. I could even mention flaps and seals and still until I did some research about what's already been published. And, and I had to think about when I wrote the book, I had to think about what's going to get through the government censoring the government's, you know, black highlighter. And I was like, Oh, there's no way I can say flaps and seals. And then I, was, I did some research and I was like, wow, I, I actually can. And uh, they deserve a lot of credit for helping me and Steve to methodically go through her apartment and and deal with the dust bunnies and deal with you know removing dust from a from from a piece of something because you know Anna's not cleaning her apartment and the, and cleaning well she's cleaning her apartment but she's not cleaning the closet with the 14 old purses that she had kept from you know 1970 or whatever it was you know she wasn't cleaning the dust off of those so a lot of risk there and our biggest fear was her Really, learning that people had been in her apartment, and that's that was part of the big cat and mouse challenge that I enjoyed um, uh, pretty pretty significantly.
0: Yeah, because I get, I guess you know, um, and it's difficult to get through an interview like this without mentioning James Bond. But you know, I'm thinking of uh, you know placing a hair in the door frame or something, and so that then if the door's opened when the person comes back they notice that the hair's not there i mean it must be minute detail these guys and girls are uh you know trying to avoid those sort of traps
1: yeah and there's a difference in terms of your thoroughness and i mean this is obvious but let me let me highlight to your audience you know black bag job you're trying to get in and get out without being detected finding what you're looking for but You can't rip the place apart. You gotta leave it as you found it. During the criminal search on September 21st, we found when we could tear the place apart, um, a very odd James Bond-like trap. Um, We found a a CD-ROM, an Encarta Encyclopedia CD-ROM, that was tied together with uh, a Walt Whitman poetry book. And it was stuck between like blankets or sheets or or towels, I can't remember in a in a a laundry closet or where she stood her ex, she kept her extra linens. And I can guarantee you, if we had found that during the black bag jobs, we would have been like, "Well, this is really odd," and we would have had our hands all over it. And you know, to the degree we were being very careful, it certainly would have been suspicious. And, and we it would have drawn our attention. So, you know, to a degree, I'm almost thankful we didn't find it during the covert searches um, because it would have jumped out at us and we would have, I would have put peat prints, I think, as I wrote all over it. And, um, you know, who knows <laughs> what magic she would have had to have been able to figure out that those aren't my fingerprints. Those are somebody else's. Um,
0: because you, you talk about eureka moments in 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 the book and i think we've talked about them in the um in in the chat that we've been having um today but um i mean you you go into that flat in on the first cover visit and you have those eureka moments because you you know you, what i like is is you talk about you find the shortwave radio that she's listening to on the windowsill So you have a very careful look at that. And then you think, well, she's going to have to have, you know, the bedroom's quite small and the information she's going to need to uh, note down or uh, decrypt the messages she's receiving is going to be nearby. And so you look under the bed and there is your eureka moment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Owning a shortwave radio in and of itself is not a crime. And um, a necessity for a Cuban agent or a Cuban legal officer, I you know, it would have been, it would have been really bad if we didn't find a shortwave radio because we knew that the high frequency messages were coming in and we knew, we didn't know she, we couldn't prove that she was receiving them, but we did see very suspicious behavior where the next day she would go to a pay phone and call a, a 917 area pager number, but couldn't prove that that belonged to or was in the control of Cuban intelligence because we couldn't, because of that need to know and to be very careful about identifying who, we knew the pager number and we knew where it was purchased out of. But if we showed up with some kind of, you know, document saying, hey, we're the FBI, give us the name of who, who you sold this pager to, that potentially the next phone call from them could have been to that guy who purchased it. And that would have been perhaps a, a Cuban intelligence officer. And it was, it would have been game over. So the shortwave radio was definitely needed, not criminal in and of itself. That computer, that Toshiba is the reason she went to jail and she knows it. She knows that, but not for the contents that were deleted. So she thought on that computer, um she wouldn't have spent a night in jail she may have been fired. she probably would have been fired i mean you know scott and and dia would have had enough to fire her but just firing someone um you never would have heard her name and and we would not have learned what she did without getting into her apartment getting that computer finding what was on the computer and that's what the fbi does i mean this is a team effort DIA gets their credit for for identifying her, and this is where the FBI should get its credit because these are the tools, the skills, the techniques that the FBI has, and that's why that's why people know her name. It's it's both agencies, not just one versus the other. It's it's totally a team.
0: So you you your uh, people make a copy of Anna's uh, Toshiba computer and uh, you've then got access to those files, and rather than a eureka moment, you have an oh shit
1: moment yeah yeah it was a it was it was both <laughs> it was it was um you know it it took a couple days. it took a couple of weeks actually we 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 gave we gave a copy to another government agency and we asked them to look for spy dust electronic spy dust. And instead, you know, encryption, you know, uh, camouflage, all these kind of unique spy things that that they have the expertise to look for. Instead, what they came back was just just pages and pages of text and and a diary. Um, Eleven pages in Spanish, single spaced from Cubans to her, from her to the Cubans. You know, and it it, it was it was ninety five percent of the affidavit of probable cause that led to her arrest. I mean it's it's it proved national defense information, it proved passage to a foreign power, it proved to benefit Cuba, you know, it proved all the elements of the crime that we needed to, and it gave us a sense as to what kind of things she had passed. Perhaps not in the in the seventeen years by that point in time, nearly seventeen years, but at least in the window that she was typing and receiving messages from the Cubans on that, and and again, you know, without that computer, she she would not have spent a night in jail, in my opinion.
0: So we're we're moving in. Well, we're in two thousand and one. Nine eleven happens, and on the sixteenth of September, she goes to a uh, payphone.
1: Yeah yeah we did there's a picture in the book um it's the only surveillance picture we had of her making a pay phone call and uh completely unbeknownst to us she makes our surveillance moments before or just moments after that picture is taken and we didn't know it uh, another mistake if i'm being honest and um you know what i think that moment captures that mistake captures is her dedication her commitment to what she's doing you know think about it probably a normal person would have not made that phone call and perhaps would have ran away and and you know if they made surveillance if they felt like they were being followed and were were all but assured that they were under investigation. The last thing they would have done would have been to make that pay phone call. And she, cause she's committed, had a message, a two word message that she believed she needed to tell the Cubans five days after September 11th. And that was that they were in danger of being attacked in her opinion by the United States in response to 9-11 and the reality of that was, was inaccurate but when the queen of Cuba, the senior expert on Cuba at the department of defense is telling the Cuban intelligence service, you're in danger, you know, that, that opinion would have carried a significant amount of weight to the Cuban government. And, um, you know, we watched her make the pay phone call. We didn't know that she knew about it. Um, It was a two word message. Um, It wasn't espionage per se. It may have been, you know, if that's all we had perhaps that was a would have been a lesser charge like the charts that ambassador roca was charged with you know being an agent of a foreign power if that's all we had but it was it was incredibly damaging and significant in terms of the timing after 9-11 i mean you see where her loyalty lies it's not with the united states after 9-11 it's not like okay i'm going to scale back and maybe not conspire with our enemies not that Cuba had anything to do with 9 11. But let me, let me, maybe, maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe I should, you know, be on Team America f- five days after 9 11. In fact, her instinct is to call the Cubans and say, hey, you you all are in danger. That's who she is. That's who Ana Montez is. And that's, that's part of why I want, I wrote the book and, and, and part of why, when I want the reader and the American public to know who she is and what she did.
0: Now, five days after that call, she's arrested. But even though she knows she was under surveillance, she doesn't make any effort to destroy the laptop or destroy any other spy paraphernalia
1: that she's got.
0: Why do you... Did she ever say why she didn't do that?
1: She thought that the computer had been wiped. So she assumed, misassumed that it was clean um I, I had a chance recently to re-watch some of the debriefing of her which was kind of a surreal moment um i hadn't watched it before because i was i was the dark-haired guy sitting at the table right there and uh back when i had dark hair <laughs> um and and it was interesting to hear her in her own words because my my memory is she, she knew how damaging that computer was, but, but to hear her say, yeah, that, that, that computer is why I went to prison and why I'm here. And she, you could feel the weight the, the not the guilt, but like, man, if I just had gotten rid of that computer, I wouldn't be here. Um, more importantly, she didn't try to leave and flee. And although she wouldn't have been able to, we wouldn't have let her leave the United States. We didn't have an arrest warrant. You know, it's not like we had probable cause in our back pocket in the form of a signed arrest warrant by a judge. We had the probable cause, but we hadn't been able to talk to attorneys to say, yeah, you've got probable cause go ahead and go arrest her. Um, but she didn't try to leave and flee. And I think that that has always struck me as, you know, I don't know that I fully know why she didn't try. Um, I have a, an opinion and my opinion is, I think that that would have been the last biggest decision she ever would have made in her entire life. You know, there's no turning back from that decision. If you say gigs up, I got to go and try. If you're successful, let's say you get to Mexico and don't, the FBI doesn't you know, grab you off the plane, you get to Mexico city and then you're able to get to Cuba you're not coming back in three months. If the coast is clear, you're, it's it, it's, it's over. So that final decision that she made, um, not to leave was, was probably the biggest, the last biggest decision that she had to make in her life. And um, it's an interesting dilemma, you know, because she never tried to leave, but she had the capability I mean, she had, we found four crisp $100 bills in her closet. And in a bag, kind of a getaway bag that had maps of cities throughout the world. So, you know, easily could have tried to get to Dulles Airport and jumped on a plane to Mexico City, but the FBI wouldn't have allowed, we wouldn't have allowed her to do that. It had been, it had been a little cluster. <laughs> it had been a little, uh, you know, maybe Keystone Coppish. That plane's not taking off. What's your authority? Yeah. We have none. Um, let us get with an attorney, you know, but it would have been, uh, A little little clumsy, but it it wasn't going to happen.
0: Hello, I'm Craig Donald from Aberdeen, and I support Cold War Conversations with a monthly donation because it marries interesting historical content with fantastic storytelling. Ian is a great gift as an interviewer. He knows his subjects so that the conversations are meaningful, but he also allows guests to tell their own story. Cold War Conversations is part of my weekly routine, and I would urge you to make it part of yours. So she's arrested on September the 21st, 2001. Can you take me through that first meeting with her and and the arrest?
1: Yeah, you know, it was, I talked about this at the Spy Museum the other day at an event. And and I, you know, I kind of reflected back on it. It, It's 10 days after 9-11. It's three weeks after my son is born you know, none of us are getting any sleep. It's, it's, it's a chaotic, stressful time professionally and personally for me at least, and, and and everyone else that, I'm, that we're working with and surreal because I knew we, we had planned for this day forever. Well, for 10 months. And, and, but we, we never called her Ana Montes. You know, we called her our code name that I had come up with, which was just, you know, kind of lame and a throwaway. It was the it was the least worst choice that day in the computer system. Blue Ren. So anytime we referred to her in even in the squad area, when everyone knew her name to mask the subject, you know, that need to know principle, people didn't need to know Anamantes. They need, we needed to it was Blue Ren. And that day, she went from Blue Ren to Montez. And that was like kind of a surreal moment you know, she had been we had, she had been the target of our investigation for 10 months we had only seen her from afar you know but we had we had i had been in her apartment we had listened to her phone calls we listened to the microphones all these different techniques and here she was in front of us and not walking out but in handcuffs and the moment was can we get a confession out of her can we get her to admit something and from hello to lawyer, you know, I need to see a lawyer, took took all of about four minutes. <laughs> Which is not the goal, by the way. That's not the goal. No, no, no. no, no yeah, no. Kind, of, kind, of, kind of not the goal. In it. But, you know, it's, it's it, in my mind, she had prepared to meet us far longer than either Steve or I or the FBI knew her name. You know, I think she had planned for that day from the very beginning, hoping it would never come, obviously, but like, well, what if I meet the FBI on their terms? What am I going to say? Her brother's an FBI agent. She was an avid fan of law and order. You know, so she knew her rights, very smart person, and therefore, you know, was more prepared for us to meet us than we were prepared to meet her. And that's my own personal opinion. But she didn't. She didn't give us anything that was incriminating or damaging, from an evidence perspective.
0: Now, what the the information that she'd revealed to the Cubans was, you know, potentially a death sentence for espionage.
1: Yeah, part of that. So, all of that yeah.
0: But yes. But 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 with generally with espionage cases, you want to avoid having a trial, because then. You know, you're limited in the information that you can use in that trial. Um, so you you come to an arrangement with the lawyer and Anna um, that she needs to give you all the information about what she's been doing in return for, was it 25 years? I think
1: that was the, the agreement was 25 years. The reality was she did about 22 and a half. But yeah. Yeah, twenty-five years was the was the agreement.
0: And what was that seven months like of sitting in front of her and going through that? Did you get any more insight into what she was like? And did she show any emotion or or, or anything about what she'd done?
1: So for me, the novelty of uh being in the room with Ana Montes, convicted Cuban spy, uh, you know, part of history, if you will, that novelty wore off pretty quickly, um, because you had to, I had to interact with Steve, and I had to interact with her interpersonally, and we were very professional. We really went out of our way to treat her with kindness, professional. Um, you know, for example, she had to be handcuffed coming to and from you know, the courthouse. But once she got in our room, you know, the room was not huge, but we're not talking a very small room with a light that's swinging overhead. And you know, it's not like what you see in the movies. It's a, it's an interview room. She was, we unhandcuffed her and she could walk around and pace around if she wanted to and drink plenty of water and like was treated like a professional. And it was, was not appreciated. She really, she felt, um, tortured by us. And and I'll put air quotes around torture because, you know, it was ask a question, answer it. Here's an apple. Ask a question, answer it. Would you like some salad? You know, it's like this was not torture per se, but for her betraying her friends and not having the guts to commit suicide or not take a plea for her was torture. And she really was torn by having to talk to us because of the plea agreement, but knowing that she was hurting the Cubans who she described as her friends. And, and uh, that for her was, was very difficult, but I can agree that interacting with her for seven months was, was very difficult for me, at least. I don't, I don't know. I think Steve probably had a, a different opinion, but I, I just, I just really didn't, didn't like her. And it was hard for me not to, you know kind of wear that on my sleeves and and although i treated her professionally you know maybe maybe i wasn't as mature as i am now and um i had a hard time with with what she was going to do regarding afghanistan and that really just kind of pissed me off
0: yeah because i think you, you ask her whether you, she would have you would have prov- she would have provided information about the u.s plans for afghanistan yep. to to cuba and she confirms that she would have done if she'd had access to that information. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. think you probe her a little bit further, don't you on that?
1: It was a hypothetical. And and this was, this was, you know, we went down a couple hypothetical roads, which helped us, I think come to an, an ultimate judgment that she likely was telling us most of the truth. You know, there's no, there's no truth serum. There's no, she was polygraphed, and we knew the polygraph was going to be argued one way or the other because she'd already beat a polygraph. So we had to have little nuggets of questions that we knew the answers to, but she didn't know we knew the answers to. And we had those, but these hypotheticals she went down, like she could, like, we, when we asked her, Where, where are you going to spy against Afghanistan? It never happened because she was arrested. So she didn't have to say yes. She could have easily have said, nah, that no, no, because she knows the emotion that the whole country had, you know, you know, she, she, she knew she was, she was free on November 11th or September 11th and, and like knew how this country was suffering from, from that, from that tragedy. And I think to go down that hypothetical road with us, uh, it, it angered me, but at the same time, it showed me that she was telling the truth because she was saying things she knew were it was going to piss people off. And, and, you know, it did. But, um, you know, Afghanistan had nothing to do with Cuba. There was no benefit to Cuba um, other than they would have perhaps traded the intelligence that she gave them. But she said that's the risk those people that were going to Afghanistan took. And I just I find that to be very un-American. And still hard. It's still hard to really not get angry over. To be honest with you. even even to this day, it it, it has a tendency to kind of get me get me a little choked up and upset. So that's where you know the Jersey thing. <laughs> you know where I wear my emotions on my sleeves. Maybe I don't know. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Because she did show some sort of empathy. For you, about your personal circumstances, which I found quite surprising, you mentioned that
1: yeah, I tried to look at her um, not black and white right and uh, right and wrong, good or bad um, i tried to I try to look at her from a different perspective and there's a law enforcement way of looking at her, and I think there's there's maybe a different way and i tried to I, I think she's a complicated person she's not all bad. Um, you know, just like I'm not all good, you know, so, so we have, all of us have degrees of complications. And I think that was an example where she did genuinely seem to be, um, interested and, 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 uh, empathetic to my own personal, you know, with my son's health and my former wife's health at the time. Um, and I don't think it was an act. I think, I think she... You know, she does have a, a an ability to care and be empathetic. It's it's just who who are you empathetic with? I mean, she she likes to think she was helping the Cuban people, but let's be honest. I mean, she was helping a totalitarian regime, and and therefore not really helping the Cuban people. What did they benefit from her intelligence? You know, in my opinion, nothing. So, I think that's that's yeah. She she did show empathy to me, and I wanted to kind of try and be, you know, where, where she earned some positiveness. I didn't want to, I didn't, I tried to be very non-judgmental of her in what I wrote, you know, as best I could lay out the facts and let people come to their own conclusion. But it's interesting. I mean, like, you know, you, I see things, interviews that I do or things on her on YouTube or wherever, and you start looking through the comments and there are, a lot of folks out there that admire what she did and, and she's she's told people that she is you know whether it's true or not i don't know but that she is recognized and spotted in san juan and people people come up to her and thank her and, and appreciate her wow
0: wow yeah um right. pete the the book I really enjoyed. It's a, it's a great read, and it gave me so much more insight than I was expecting. Because, the, as you say, there's your personal story, which I know is not a memoir, but it 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 shows, you know that that you know when you're doing a job like this, you still have another life that yeah. that you've you've got to deal with. It gave some great insight into the trade craft. I mean, we only just scratched the surface there of the um, some of the details um that that are in there so um really appreciate you uh putting the book together now what we are doing is we are going to be doing a book giveaway um on this episode so i just i had the book up on the shelf but you didn't notice it pete but...
1: <laughs> i saw it i saw it i didn't oh
0: okay, it. It was oh, very okay. Coy. i liked it hey. Yeah, that Quantico training is still there then.
1: Huh? <laughs> it's a blessing and a curse. You like, you see everything. It's, it's uh, It can be a curse too.
0: Well, I'd noticed the guitar on the back wall. I'm hoping you're going to give me a bit of Bon Jovi to uh, end <laughs> the episode. Um, but, uh, the the book's Queen of Cuba by Peter J. Lapp. Uh, there will be information in the episode notes about the book giveaway, so do check that out. And they will be signed copies of the book as well. So not just any old book, they will be signed copies. So do check that out. And uh, there'll also be a link in there if you're not feeling lucky to buy the book as well. Um, but Peter, really appreciate you coming on and a uh, really, really fascinating chat.
1: Yeah, thank you. Uh really appreciate it. I hope that people enjoy it. I'm proud of it. No, I appreciate... Um, uh, the talk, the conversation, and uh, you know how, how well read you were on the topic. You, you asked some questions that I had never been asked before. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. This was fun.
0: Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos, and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters. And I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week.